the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, as we continue our look to the history of the Royal Australian Air Force, today we go to the Adelaide Hills, and I'm talking with Wing Commander Norm Goodall, retired. Now, Norm actually went solo at just over 16 years, making him the youngest pilot in Australia at that time. In 1962, he joined the RAAF, graduated as a pilot, and was posted to Williamtown on fighters. He was then attached to number 77 squadron in Malaysia in 1964 during the confrontation. In 1965, he started flying Mirages, a highlight of which was taking part in the 1967 Operation Fast Caravan. He went to Vietnam in 1970 as a flight commander with Huey gunships. In 1972, he had a change of pace and became a flying instructor on Mackies at the Advanced Flying Training School in Western Australia. From 1974, Norm had a, a series of significant postings, Assistant Defence Attaché, Thailand, Operations Officer Number 77 Squadron, Integrated Air Defence System, Butterworth, Headquarters Opcom as Staff Officer, Reconnaissance, and then posted to Recruit Training Unit, Edinburgh, as commanding officer. He retired from the RAAF on the 4th of July, 1985. He joined Lloyd Helicopters and eventually flew twin-engine helicopters with the offshore oil industry. In 1990, he began life as a sailor. And I quote, he went in our yacht Mirage, sailing from Adelaide to Darwin. Then in 1992, he sailed heading west out of Darwin and eventually arriving in Bundaberg on uh, 1997 in November. He's visited 36 countries and he's sailed 37,000 plus nautical miles. Norm now has a cattle farm in the Adelaide Hills and is involved with the community. Norm, what a, a fascinating career, just uh, reading through that uh, bio of you. You were the youngest pilot at the time, to go solo, it's what, 16 years and a couple of months? Uh, no, it was 16 years and uh, 10 days. How did that occur? T take me through that. Well, I grew up next to the Parafoot Aerodrome and uh, on a farm, and I was always keen to fly. And uh, I started working at the Arrow Club when I was 13 and a half uh, to get money to learn to fly. Uh, I was paid uh, one pound 10 or 30 bob for a weekend's work and it was five pound ten an hour to fly so I managed to scrape it all together and uh, I'd bum rides with anybody who'd take me flying and every now and again I'd go away with an instructor on the, when they go up uh, country and I'd get a little bit of intuition and on my 16th birthday I got my must admit I'd rode my motorbike into Adelaide to get my license which has been illegal and I got my student pilot's license on the day and then it was uh, I was in there for the school holidays to learn to fly. So how were you uh, received when an adult sees a 16-year-old coming up and saying, can I learn to fly? I mean, that must have been challenging in itself. 
Uh, well, I've been the tarmac boy, so I guess everybody knew me, and then, you know, they couldn't get rid of me. I was like the proverbial bad smell around the place. Uh, I was just <laughs> dead keen on aeroplanes and wanting to fly. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. All right, tell us about why you chose to join the Air Force, when, and how difficult or how easy was it? Well, as I said, living next to the aerodrome, I was always uh, keen on aeroplanes. Um, I had two things in life. I either wanted to have a pole Hereford stud or go flying. And uh, I thought flying was a bit easier than running cattle because living on a dairy farm. <laughs> School work to me was just, I had to do that to, to get into the Air Force. It wasn't one of my, my priorities. My aim was if it was a pass mark of 50, 51% was all I had to do. Studying wasn't that hard. And also when I turned 14, I uh, joined the Air Training Corps. So I was keen on the Air Force. I couldn't do the weekend work because I was working at the parafield, but used to, mum and dad used to drive me down to uh, Barton Terrace in Adelaide every, uh, I think it was Wednesday night for ATC parades. Oh, um, so you, you, you joined the AT, you didn't join the ATC at school, you joined the actual ATC outside of school? Outside of school. We didn't have an ATC at uh, the school I went to. Um, right. So I joined at uh, Barton Terrace, which was the, the headquarters of the ATC, and I was in um, two flight there. You know, I was keen on the Air Force, and then I was up at Matala uh, during an air display, and a uh, Sabre broke the sound barrier, then did a, a high-speed pass, and I said, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. So the first time I applied to the Air Force, they said, come back after you turn 18, Sonny. So I applied for the next one, and uh, I was lucky enough to be accepted. Were you 18? <laughs> I was 18. I, yeah. I, I joined the Air Force. Um, I was 18 in the May, the 30th of May, and I joined the Air Force on the 24th of June on the next pilot's course. Well, you certainly you certainly are committed. So in those initial stuff, you're in the Air Force. You've just joined up. You're 18 plus. What was it like for that first couple of years? Just give us your experience as a, as a new person who's joined this illustrious group of people. Well, I guess the first, uh, while you're on pilot's course, is that dreadful thing hanging over you, you that you can be scrubbed and it, you know, it's your life. You don't want that to happen. I think the the part of the course was you all got on together and tried to drag everybody through. Um, I forget the number we started with. It was something like 24 or, t or 26 pilots. And uh, we only graduated uh, 10. And one of those had been back course from a previous course. So the scrub rate was pretty high. Um, so that was always something in the back of the mind, can I get scrubbed? And it wasn't until later in life when I was an instructor that you realise that you don't want try not to scrub anybody off course because that, you know, you just remember when, when you went through how keen you were to pass and what yeah. it meant to you. So as an instructor, you, I never, I scrubbed quite a few, but I always gave them the benefit of the doubt and gave them another instructor before they got scrubbed just to make sure that it, it wasn't me who was causing their problems. So I understand that, and that's that's a remarkable quality. But at the same time, uh, it's I imagine it's vital that you do put into a, the cockpit of a fighter a person who is extremely competent and is going to be able to do the job. Oh my word! Yeah, yeah. You can't just let any you got you can't just let anybody go through. You've got to maintain the standards, but. If they're a bit marginal, I, as I said, I always gave myself the benefit of the doubt that maybe I wasn't getting the message through to him and somebody else could. Um, so we, we did, but yeah, no, the main thing was we had to maintain a standard and uh, I think that's why the Air Force is so professional. 
Yeah, probably one of the most, if not the most professional in the entire world. In your early training, what were your steps through? What was your first first plane and how did you progress through the through the planes to finally getting into the Sabre that broke the sound barrier? Uh, well, we started off at uh, Point Cook at, um, on the Windjill and when I joined the Air Force, I actually had everything from a commercial licence, hours and subjects, except again, I wasn't old enough, you had to be 19 to hold a commercial licence. So I had a bit of advantage that I had previous experience. And uh, so we did that at Point Cook, uh, joined in June, and then in May, we went across to Pierce in West Australia, and uh, we converted onto the Vampire. Um, So that was the first jet I ever flew. Um, and we graduated uh, in the October that year, so that was 1963. I graduated from Pierce and I was posted to Williamtown. Uh, Williamtown, not 1964 to 75 squadron, was that the um, way it went? When I was posted there, I was posted to the OCU and it was 75 and 76 squadron were at uh, Williamtown. And after I finished OCU, I was posted into 75 squadron. Do you remember at all your very first flight in a Sabre? Yes. Uh, I think you know, it's the first time that you get into an aeroplane all by yourself and the, you haven't done it before type thing. So, yeah, it was pretty exciting that first trip. You're only 20 in a Sabre, surely? Well, I just joined 75 Squadron after finishing the Sabre course on my 20th birthday, the 30th of May, oh. 40 in... Uh, 64. These birthdays seem to play a big role in your RAAF career. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, they're happening a bit too often these days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I understand, Norm. I have the same problem. Um, Let's let's go to, I mean, you're in the Sabre. You've been sent to Malaysia, and this is... uh, part of the uh, the confrontation what do you recall about that and and what was the thought process going through all of your other fellow RAAF officers during that confrontation well it's interesting because when it first mooted who was going to go to Malaysia it was half the squadron 75 squadron was going to go to Malaysia and the other half were going to was 76 squadron they deployed to Darwin being one of the junior pilot officers I was pretty uh, stoked that I got posted to uh, or attached to uh, Butterworth, you know, the big thing there was that all of a sudden you're uh, a 19-year-old or 20-year-old and you're going off to war. Yes, we uh, we sat on alert all during the day and uh, at first light in the morning we get airborne to first, force, first light and go stand off patrols out the back of Penang and in the evening we do the same thing, you do patrols out the back of Penang and land back in the dark. For a young guy it was uh, pretty uh, interesting part of my career. Did you come across any of the enemy as they were at that stage during your time? No, the closest I got to it, I got scrambled on one and that was uh, on an aircraft coming towards from Madang and when he got to the uh, FIR boundary, uh, he turned around and went back the other way, so never actually saw another aeroplane. Can you tell me what Operation Fast Caravan was? Uh, Operation Fast Caravan, uh, we're now back at Williamtown and I converted onto the Mirage and uh, 75 Squadron. And Fast Caravan was the deployment of 75 Squadron Mirages uh, to Butterworth. We went via, in those days we weren't allowed to talk at a place called Jawanda in Indonesia. It was an Indonesian uh, naval air force base. 
uh, we transited through there um, from Darwin to uh, Butterworth. So it was the deployment of the first Mirage Squadron overseas. And how was that jump for you, Sabres to Mirages? Well, going on to the Mirage, um, again, when I went on to it, we didn't have a dual aircraft, so it was all straight into a single-seater. But having flown, I had, what, 400 hours on Sabres. Uh, at that stage, it was uh, no real big difference, other than it was a bit quicker. The Delta wing was sort of a... They said it was a, oh, you've got to watch the Delta wing, but really it was just another aeroplane. Uh, the old French lady, I loved it. But surely there'd be a big difference between uh, the power, the manoeuvrability, the... Uh, the radar, etc. Oh, it was a huge difference. You know, it was sort of you going from one generation to the next generation. So now, sort of, uh, call it, I guess you could say the Sabre was the second generation, and the Mirage was the third generation uh, fighter. Yes, there's a lot to to learn and uh, develop because we'd never had an aircraft with radar before. We never had an aircraft with Mach two capability. Um, we had radar missiles instead of as well as a Sidewinder. So yeah, it was a, a big, big jump. Talking to a, a previous uh, fighter pilot about the Sabres and uh, without the radar, some of them doing night manoeuvres and even flying formation at night just to see how they could do it. Did you get involved in that sort of thing with the Sabre? Yeah, I did uh, night formation, yeah. But yeah, it was always interesting night formation. <laughs> so how do you do it? I mean, if you've got no radar, what what's the trick? Well, no, you... Um... You can join up very slowly. You, uh, they normally used to use the GCI radar and they'd vector us onto the other aircraft. And then uh, you just slowly come in below it and eventually pick up the lights and um, the old pucker factor starts working pretty well as you're getting in a bit closer. And eventually you can, you can form out just on his nav lights. Yeah, all you're using is his light to form. That's right, yes. I'm glad you're the fighter pilot and I'm not. <laughs> well, it was very interesting at night. Not, I didn't do it in the uh, Sabre, but the Mirage at night, night formation and Mirage in cloud was, again, one of those you really had to work hard at and uh, you were glad when you got out of the cloud. I would like to dwell, if, I, if you don't mind, on Vietnam because you actually volunteered to go to Vietnam. Uh, what was going through your mind at that stage and what was the reason for your volunteering? Well, I guess I wanted to go to Vietnam first as a forward air controller, and I didn't get a forward air controller's uh, slot. And then I applied to go as a Canberra pilot, and um, I didn't get a slot. So um, at that stage, I decided that I'd go and fly for Qantas. And when I went to the interview at Qantas, unbeknownst to me, I was on day one, the first question they asked was, have you resigned from the Air Force? And I said, no. Anybody who said no didn't get the slot to go to Qantas. So a few months later, I got knocked back by Qantas on Thursday, promoted on Friday to flight lieutenant, and on Monday they offered me the, the slot to go to Vietnam on uh, helicopters as the gunship flight commander, which I said yes. Unfortunately, at that stage, my uh, then wife was uh, four months pregnant. Uh, so I had to go home and tell her that, oh, bugger, they posted me to Vietnam. I didn't tell her that I volunteered. <laughs> Oh, that's very brave of you. Very brave. <laughs> yeah. Did she finally find out that you volunteered? Yeah, I eventually, uh, eventually came clean. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still married, I assume. No, not married <laughs> to that one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, but let's just go to changing the subject. Tell us about the gunships. You was, weren't you CO of gunships? Well, I was the, the flight commander of the gunships. Um, what we had was we had four 
uh, Iroquois that we could modify into the gunships. And at any stage, we had three armed gunships. Where as were a little different setup to the Americans, where we had the mini guns on the forward mount and the rockets on the aft mount, and the door gunners had uh, twin M60s on a pindle so that um, they could have an arc of fire without shooting anything, not putting rounds through the rotor. Uh, there was no weapons training on uh, helicopters in Australia, so it was all done in country. And that's why they put a, a fighter pilot in charge. Um, the other fighter pilots who went on to choppers all went stayed on choppers where I was lucky enough to uh, go back onto fighters after my choppers. Um, Tell us about the gunship. Uh, how effective were they as a weapon? Well, if you talk to the troops on the ground, and uh, you'll see quite a few at uh, uh, various places I go to, they always say what a great job we did to you know keep the, the enemy's heads down. Uh, a lot of times all you were brassing up was a lot of trees. Uh, you couldn't actually see what you were trying to hit on the ground. I only ever got a couple of people in the open once. The rest of the time it was... You'd, they'd mark their position with the smoke and uh, you'd put the fire in. Uh, normally we used to use uh, safety distance of 50 uh, metres for the miniguns. Yep. But uh, I had brought it in on danger close to 10 metres on one occasion, which is pretty scary because you don't want to shoot your own troops. The, the statistics that I think you've provided, you were 963 hours you flew and you fired 1.3 million rounds of uh, ammunition. That's that's quite a number. Yeah, no, uh, I got involved in uh, over 50 firefights in my time there. Operation Overlord, which is the same date as over the World War II Overlord, is now yeah. known as the Battle of Long Khan, not Long Tan, Long Khan. Now, on that day, I did 13 rearms. So that's 130,000 minigun rounds I fired that day. Yeah. Um, did you did you ever take part in uh, Coral and Balmoral? No, no, that was before my time. I was there in uh, 70, uh, 71. Right. Okay. So, so you, were, you were pretty much near the end of it when we pulled out. Yes. Yeah. When I left, we were winning. Yeah, uh, it, it's quite a it's quite an interesting period of Australian history. Uh, I, I, it's, this is not meant as a political question at all. But how disappointed were you, were you when the troops, Air Force, Army, whatever, came back, and in the initial stages there wasn't a really overwhelming positive reception? It was pretty hurtful. You know, the thing I remember coming back. Um, we did the, uh, came back with Qantas and the small world, one of the, the uh, uh, first officers who was doing his upgrade to captain was an old friend of mine from the Aero Club days. And we went via Townsville and uh, to drop off Fora and then to Sydney. When I got to Sydney, I realised I had doubled the cigarettes uh, I was allowed to bring in. And I said, mate, I'm sorry, and I was told to F off. You know, and yeah. I thought, well, welcome home, sunshine. Um, yeah. That was sort of the attitude. And when I went to join the RSL, I hadn't been in a real war, so I didn't join that. Uh, you know, you, we never wore our ribbons when we went in uniform in town in Newcastle. Um, yeah, I guess I was pretty bitter about about that. Uh, thank, thank God all of that has changed and we acknowledge the service of all the men and women 
in every confrontation that Australian Defence Forces have been involved in. At least that has changed. Yes, no. I think maybe the pendulum's gone a bit the other way, a bit too far in one way. You know, I always remember when one of my pilots was killed, um, I was going out to go flying and there was the... Um, it was four coffins on a pallet to go on the hurt. There's yeah. no ramps ever been. Um, yeah. Nothing like that. Um, and I feel that we've gone a bit too far the other way, but if it gives people that sense of closure, I guess it's the right thing. Yeah, sure. Norm, 1974, you're squadron leader, and I believe you were posted to the Australian Embassy in Thailand. Is that correct? Yes, no, uh, it was good old postings. They told me that uh, I was going to be posted back to Williamtown, and uh, which was great because I was in motor racing. And out of the blue, I'm posted to <laughs> Assistant Defence Attaché into Thailand. So uh, that was a very interesting uh, couple of years. So to, to what extent then does the RAAF and its training and all of the things that it provides its personnel, to what extent does it give you that ability to virtually do almost anything else other than be in the RAAF? I think that's a training. Um, you know, you've got to have a broad spectrum of training. I think posting to the embassy in Thailand was a, you know, as a attaché, you're basically a military spy. You certainly see mixed with the other attachés from various countries to see how yep. they work. And I think it gives you a pretty broad spectrum of uh, what the real world's about. Then, what is it, 1983, uh, you go to Edinburgh as the CEO of Recruits? Uh, again, that was another one of those. Uh, I uh, came back from Butterworth and I was at uh, headquarters, or operational commander was called in those days, and they said it was uh, six wing commanders had the qualifications to be the uh, first flight commander on the F-18. And uh, lo and behold, out of, the, out of the six, the seventh one got up and <laughs> got it, and I got said, would you like to be CEO of RTU? And I said, well, I'm not going to get a flying post again, am I? And he said, no. So I said, I'll take that one. The recruit Didn't the recruits, they had a broad age range, 17 to 42? 17 to 42. It's, uh, and the other thing you had from people who were going to be red techs who had a fairly high education to people who were going to be general hands who had, had the minimum requirements. So it was a very interesting um, sort of spectrum of people we had. And... The man management problems, I think, was the the greatest thing. Well, you wouldn't believe some of the things that happened, put it that way. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you, you're in the Air Force in a very uh, important period of decades, from the 60s through until the 80s. Uh, how would you define that period of time in the development of the Royal Australian Air Force as a fighting machine? I think in that time, just from what I've seen out since I've been out, or when I retired, is in those days, it was a lot more camaraderie because we, as young pilot officers, you had to live in the mess. So you got to know your mates a lot better. Nowadays, it seems to be, uh, you know, there's no mess life. The whole system of training is changed. I still say that the 70s, 80s were the best time in the Air Force. Um, I don't know if I'd really like to be in there now be quite honest. All right. You like you flew the Mirage, you get out of the Air Force, and you decide to get a yacht, and you call it Mirage. Why? 
Why not? Silly <laughs> question, of course. Why not? So you've spent eight years sailing. I mean, you've been flying planes, sabres, vampires, windshields, mirages. Now you spend eight years on the water. People said, why do you do it? I said, well, because I could. When I got out of the Air Force, I got divorced and uh, then I remarried. And uh, we had a baby daughter. So when we left Adelaide, she was only three and a half. Uh, I was still flying with Lloyd Helicopters in the oil rig business uh, out of Darwin. So we sailed the boat to Darwin. Uh, and I kept flying with Lloyds um, in the Timor Gap, up in the Philippines, all down the West Coast. Um, and then we headed west from Darwin and proved the world's not flat. And we hit Bundaberg uh, sort of another four years' time. Yeah, quite an amazing career, Norm, when you think about it. I mean, from a flying man to a sailing man, and then where you started, back to a cattle man. How did that happen? I don't think I could ever just sit back and retire as, you know, like, not have a job. You've got to keep active. I'm still racing motor cars, for instance. Well, no, I don't know about that hobby. Tell, explore that with me. Racing what sort of motor cars? Where? Uh, I only do what they call hill climbs, motor carners, and super sprints. Uh, I've got a 1977 Porsche. I've run it at Bathurst, I've run it at Eastern Creek, Phillip Island, or the new one out at the Taylor Bend, Witten. Wow. You know, as I, I think you've got to remember the old motto, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be a pilot. Sorry, son, you can't do both. Well, that's my problem. I haven't grown up yet. <laughs> and your involvement now with RSL and Legacy, can you tell us about that and why? Well, when I came back from... Uh, sailing we got back in 98 i thought well i've got to join i didn't do the march in sydney because i was still so angry about the way i'd been treated yep. when i got back i decided that i should join the rsl which was interesting because uh, one of the members who was the bar member said you didn't fight in the real war which sort of had a bit of a problem to get going to the rsl so eventually yeah. i got on the committee and uh, I've been virtually on the committee now for the last 20 years. Um, my wife's been president, Kate's been president, because um, she was a nurse in the Air Force. Um, yep. She's been president for 16 years. Um, I'm the jack of all trades, um, looking after it. And we've got to keep it going. You know, the young people nowadays don't really want to put their hand up to be a volunteer. Uh, and we've got to keep educating people what what service is all about. You know, it's a, I think the, the best way to explain it is, you know, when you join the military, you give them a, a blank check which says up and include, and including my life. Um, and you've got to get people to remember that the reason why they're having such a good life is a lot of veterans paid the, the price so that they could have a good life. Yeah, 100,000 Australians have passed away in war. You, you're so right, you're yeah. so right, Norm. Well, look, you started off as a kid working in an area where you were feeding the nation with cattle. You ended up defending the nation in the Air Force. You then took to exploring the nation on sea, and now you're back feeding the nation again with cattle. You're a remarkable man, Norm, and I really genuinely want to thank you for your service to Australia and your involvement in a very important history, 100 years of the Royal Australian Air Force. Sir, thank you for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Globally, 
the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.